Hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to continue our discussion of the concept of anxiety by Soren Kierkegaard starting from chapter uh, 3. So before jumping into this, if you're new here, welcome. I'm David. I try to explain philosophical texts in a somewhat accessible way. So if you haven't already, like, share, subscribe so you can see my videos that I release every week. Sometimes I release more than once a week so that, you know, you want to be notified when, when that happens so you can you can keep up with this stuff. Uh, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can do that on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy. If you want to help me out, as I've already said, like, share, subscribe. Uh, you can help me out monetarily. If you want to do that via Patreon or PayPal, that would be great. If uh, you're listening to this in podcast form, you can sometimes find videos of me on YouTube. Uh, if you're listening to this or if you found me on YouTube, you can find this in podcast form pretty much anywhere you get podcasts where there shouldn't be any ads. So that's obviously... Uh, a plus. Now, I don't want to waste any more of your time with, with that stuff. Let's start here from chapter three of the concept of anxiety, starting with chapter three, titled, Anxiety is the consequence of that sin which is absence of the consciousness of sin. So, anxiety is the consequence of sin that is being ignorant about uh, sin. So, he begins this chapter by taking a swipe at Hegel again, how he, critis er, he criticizes how Hegel claimed the presuppositionless of beginning of, of the beginning of philosophy while still maintaining the possibility for negation, transition, and mediation. So these must be, for Kierkegaard, presupposed. So to put this in other terms, Kierkegaard criticizes the way that Hegel says that there's nothing to, that you can presuppose. But the only way that he makes that possible is by introducing the notions of transition, mediation, negation, pretty much in Hegel, for those that are unfamiliar, to, be, to put it really simply, Hegel sees that the only commonality between things is the fact that they aren't common, or uh, the fact that they are all uncommon and therefore signaling that they are always in transition. Now, what he derives from this is the fact that there is a commonality in their uncommonness. There is a commonality in their not being the same. So that is precisely what he clings on to. But Kierkegaard here says that Hegel's not ascribing as much value to negation and transition and movement and mediation here as he should be, because he presupposes those in order for him to even come out with the conclusion that the only common thing is the uh, possibility for transition or negation. But in any case, what Kierkegaard wants to do here is hold on to the possibility of transition but qual or movement, we could also say, or negation, but qualifies the emergence of newness not as a positiv positivistic movement, sorry, as a kind of teleological one or moving from like point A to point B or that, you know, history is going in a, a certain direction. He doesn't want it to be considered in that way, but he wants to think about it instead as coming about through a leap. That is, we, this qualitative leap that we've already discussed in the last episode. So in this kind of possibility for transition, in this possibility for movement, what we see introduced into the body-mind-spirit split kind of triptych or trichotomy, trichotomy, is that a word? I don't know. Trichotomy. What we have introduced is the possibility for that, uh, that triptych, that kind of the three elements of, of a human. What we have then is the introduction of the change of that. So what we have is the introduction of temporality. And here he introduces to us the idea of the temporal and the eternal. 
So Kierkegaard maintains that time is infinite, which is an interesting thing to assume because we don't know if time is infinite, but that's what he gives us here. And encapsulates the past, the present, and the future. So if time is infinite, this raises a number of problems about the past and the present and the future, yet we know to some extent that these things exist, even though Kierkegaard is going to come to trouble that a little bit. So to kind of reiterate, in order to make this as clear as I can, we are comprised of body, mind, and spirit. And this body, mind, and spirit can undergo various changes and transitions and mutations. And that is only demonstrated or made possible through our existing within time. Or what Kant calls the transcendental aesthetic, you know, we are always within time. We can't, we can't be outside of time. Now within the infinite, that is if there was only infinity that wasn't like qualified in any way, it would be impossible to have like a moment because all moments would just be like every last moment and every moment following would be like everyone following it. And for a more rigorous discussion of this, I really recommend Kant uh, in the Critique of Pure Reason. Toward the end of it, he discusses how either the universe is infinite or how it is finite. And he gives reasons for either. He gives like the best possible argument for that the universe is infinite and time is infinite versus if the best possible argument for how they are finite, but I won't go into that, into that here. But what we have here for Kierkegaard is that spirit introduces the possibility within infinity for there to be such thing as a moment. Now, this does demand a little bit of a leap. And if we didn't have this leap, then past, present, and future would be essentially indiscernible. Because the only way we have an acknowledgement about the past versus the future and, and the present is if we have the possibility to construct moments. Because otherwise, it would they would all just fold into one another. But this idea of the moment is very, uh, it's volatile, it's very unsteady. Because what is a moment? Anytime you ponder a moment, like take right now if I just pause for a second, how many moments was that? We can call that one moment just, you know, arbitrarily, but it may have been comprised of 10 moments or infinite moments. In fact, if we actually engage with the possibility for infinity, if time is in fact infinite, then that moment was in itself infinite because on an infinite timeline, any single piece of it is itself infinite. If it wasn't, that is, if there was a part of it that was uh, finite, it would mean that there was a possible uh, finitude to the infinity, which would be a contradiction and it wouldn't work. So the only way we were actually able to make that leap to introduce a moment into the infinite, into the eternal, which allows us to then have an understanding of the past, present, and future, is through this leap, through this leap of faith. And this is why for Kierkegaard, in an anthropomorphic way, of course, only humans and not animals have an understanding of the moment. And this is why for him as well, it would follow that only humans and not animals can contemplate their death. You know, they can look to the end, they can look to the future. And it is only with the possibility of the moment that history can begin because history exists within a construction of, an, of a notion of the past. And without the moment as a division of, division of past and future, we have only the past as eternal and are therefore closed off to the future. That is, to put it another way, we know where we've come from, no matter what, but without a more comprehensive understanding of the moment, we cannot look to the future, and so we are only stuck with the past. 
And he goes from this or he opens up this discussion in order to illustrate why the future is for him so much more interesting because that's where all possibility lies. And within the future is contained the entire momentum of all past events. So by virtue of that, it is the marker of something. I will just to just use a simple word greater than every previous uh, event, every previous moment. And it is only with the possibility of the future, and I kind of alluded to this in the last episode, that the possibility for anxiety opens up because you can't be anxious about something that's already happened. You can only be anxious about what is to come. And for that to be possible demands an acknowledgement or demands the creation of these various moments or for moments to happen. So we must, in any given moment, contain within us uh, the eternal, that is the of po possibility, of possibility both toward the future and of all events that came before. Because remember, sin, we are born within sin, and sin is hereditary, and it has no originary point. There's not, because if it did have an originary point, then it wouldn't be infinite, because then it could, it was finite, it had a point, to which there's, who knows what's before it. So in our construction of a moment, which is separate from eternity, we are thereby perhaps retroactively, but we are at the same time constructing the possibility and necessity of eternity. And with this is opened up more possibilities for sinfulness, more possibilities for anxiety. As he writes, he sins who lives only in the moment as abstracted from the eternal. But we can't escape this. Like we can't just shed the uh, temporal or shed the moment. So like sensuousness, like sense, uh, sense perception, we can't escape the temporal, like we are just within it. Our only task is to acknowledge it in anxiety and the anxiety it produces, uh, and essentially our proximity, therefore, to sin. That is, the fact that we feel negatively about it must have a connection to some kind of innate, which is, this is how he's looking at it psychologically, some kind of innate predisposition towards there being good and bad, which streamlines us into a kind of recognition of, of good and bad that is bestowed upon us by God. Uh, yet we don't know it for sure. It, it, we can only be sure of it through this leap of faith. Now, in contrast to other religious denominations or religious uh, affiliations, and he just, he doesn't go into like specific ones. He just kind of says paganism, you know, the non-Christian forms of, um, of religious uh, practice. He says that they are foreclosed, they are denied opportunity because they subscribe to a notion of fate, where, you know, you just, things will happen as they happen and that's it. Whereas with Christianity, where there is introduced the possibility for atonement, for repentance, for forgiveness, then we acknowledge that there is freedom allowed to us by our being opened up to possibility, by our connection to the eternal, by our connection to, to God through spirit and it is through that that we can't just like wipe our hands of this problem this anxiety we're feeling or we feel when confronted with the the endless possibilities of this world we can't just wipe our hands of that in fact kierkegaard is very strict and very clear that the task is to acknowledge our place in in the eyes of god and there is then in kierkegaard certainly an appreciation of modesty and how he and he kind of takes aim at so-called geniuses because for him geniuses are people that have gone too far like on their own they have strayed too far from world history and essentially have just 
made life purely for themselves, not not in accordance to God's will, not in accordance to the criterion that is God, but just for themselves. And this is another way that I think so many people misinterpret Kierkegaard in that they're like existentialism. Oh, it's just, you know, it's just about ourselves and, and recognizing our place in existence and making it all about knowing ourselves and all that. Kierkegaard is diametrically opposed to any such thoughts. It's not about yourselves. It is about yourself in relation to a world history in common bond with humanity that is tethered together through hereditary sin that can only be acknowledged firstly by our acknowledging our anxiety that we feel by confronting possibility, but that is given to us ultimately by God. So in the case of the genius that has strayed too far away from world history, from humanity, the task is to make them aware of the guilt that they feel and how they are actually connected to other humans and how they are not just a self on their own. And this guilt is a guilt of the freedom they are now open to. So it actually affords more possibilities. Whereas he says in a kind of strange way, he's like the genius is someone who kind of succumbs to fate, the idea of fate, because they uh, you know, see themselves as being separate from the world, from world history, which is where freedom truly lies in its connection to spirit. So here, instead, when someone goes off on their own, what they're essentially saying is like, oh, this had to have happened. Like, there was no other way to do it. Like, it is just totally of some kind of, like, divine doing, which they, you know, Kierkegaard obviously says that's just blasphemy. It's not real uh, divine sentiment. is you know, just justifying someone's own kind of being on their own. Now, when they are actually brought back into the world, that is world history in, in relation to sin and guilt, that is when real freedom opens itself up. But yet, the opposite of freedom is the guilt. So we, we experience guilt, but this guilt is guilt we feel in the face of freedom, and it actually hinders us. But without it, we wouldn't have had this acknowledgement of freedom at all. Because there is no way to experience true freedom for Kierkegaard without experiencing anxiety or guilt. And that puts us here into chapter four, anxiety of sin or anxiety as the consequence of sin in the single individual, that is the individual on their own. So when freedom acknowledges its own possibility, when, when freedom is posited, it would seem like anxiety that like, like sin uh, emerged with qualitative leap would disappear, right? When freedom is made possible, it would seem as though anxiety would disappear because we have we can do anything, when in fact that's not the case, as I think should already be clear. So like sin, freedom and anxiety presuppose themselves and are always there. Freedom does not provide comfort. It, it in fact catalyzes and motivates this anxiety. So in his words, freedom is infinite and arises out of nothing, and he continues, no matter how deep an individual has sunk, he can still sink deeper, and this can is the object of anxiety. And the very possibility that we can sink deeper is afforded to us by the acknowledgement of freedom. Because if there was no freedom, we couldn't sink any deeper and we wouldn't feel anxiety because there would, like, things would just happen according to some kind of plan. Now, anxiety cannot get rid of sin. It, it is a marker of sin and they're very much connected. But acknowledgement about anxiety can certainly lessen the sin that we experience because to not have anxiety would be like the greatest sin. That would be like believing that you are above God. Like, 
everything was meant for you and that's really all there is in this world. Uh, it's just for you. The only real thing that we can do to dispel uh, the consequences of sin, which would be sophistry, can't actually really happen, would be would be through faith. Or I should say in terms of sophistry, I mean like um, sin being itself a, uh, an attachment to non-truth, to sophistry. So he writes here, uh, and it's kind of long, but it's important. The only thing that is truly able to disarm sin is faith. Courage to believe that the state itself is a new sin. Courage to renounce anxiety without anxiety, which only faith can do. Faith does not thereby annihilate anxiety, but it, but, but itself, eternally young, it extricates itself from anxiety's moment of death. Only faith is able to do this, for only faith is the synthesis, eternal, and at every moment possible. Which is, when he's describing the synthesis here, he's describing the synthesis of the eternal and the temporal and the infinite and the finite and the um, body and psyche, which is synthesis is also spirit in this case, the relating to its, itself as a relation. So in this moment of sin that he's describing, we must qualify that we position ourselves as, as being like good with an eye to evil. So sin for him is unfree relation to evil, whereas, and this is the introduction of a new term, the demon demon demoniac the demon person a, a, a demonic person essentially is unfree in relation to good so they are they are like bad people with with uh, looking upon goodness whereas um the to be a, to recognize sin is to be a good person but to see yourself doing like bad things so the demonic is unfreedom because it erases freedom which makes sense so by situating us in evil saying that we are primarily we are like evil there is no way to change because it's just saying that oh well because we acknowledge that we are always in sin then that's just the state that we're in and there's nothing we can do about it such would explain why kierkegaard says that in this state in his words punishment would be a contradiction because if it was just fate if we were just destined for evil there'd be no reason to punish anyone there'd be no reason to feel anxiety there'd be no reason uh, for any lack of enjoyment because it would just be according to plan whereas we have these things like punishment uh, repentance uh, lack of enjoyment pain in order for us to like take ourselves away from a bad situation into what would be more virtuous which is he doesn't like the idea of virt virtuousness here so i'm just putting that term out there but in any case it gives us the possibility or the presence of like pain and punishment suffering allows us to look upon ourselves and say okay how can i make this better it, at least to better uh, align myself with god's will so if the person becomes demonic uh, they lose freedom and this kind of throws them into a kind of skeptical position where they don't see any real point to anything or kind of cynicism because nothing matters and so they don't reflect upon themselves and its relationship to God. And they become a kind of like pressure cooker, uh, almost on the verge of exploding because they, they aren't like, they're like uh, people, young men suffering or men period suffering from toxic masculinity who never go to therapy. And that one day just kind of explode in a fit of rage and, and take their anger out on their kids or their, their spouse or kind of ransack the uh, U.S. Capitol. But in any case, what we have here is someone that without coming to acknowledge themselves, without looking upon themselves, becomes even more more and more 
depressed, essentially. It becomes even more and more disheartened with themselves. And the demonic then is closed off from everyone else because they don't have this mutual connection to spirit as that recognition of a relation to a relation of a connection between body and psyche that opens one up to freedom, which is a necessary precondition. The demonic or the demoniac uh, may then speak only suddenly and as such they give way to their possible erasure in this suddenness that has no future. That is, they aren't open up to possibility and freedom, they just exist in the moment and that obviously closes them off to the possibility of spirit. Now someone who is clever here might be listening and saying, well, if we subscribe to the idea of a god, especially in the biblical sense, a kind of Christian god, then doesn't that mean that you are foreclosing possibility? Aren't you saying, oh, well, if God exists, then there must be like a plan. God knows all. God, God's all-knowing. So therefore, we can't really be free. But for Kierkegaard, that's not true at all. Uh, in fact, he would say, no, 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 no. To properly subscribe to God's will is to subscribe to the possibility of freedom that God has willed. God has willed this freedom. Uh, we have properly subscribed to that, and therefore we are opened up to possibility and, and expansion and movement and change. That, you know, looking back to his critique of Hegel, Kierkegaard takes as a presupposition to this argument. So to talk about the idea of the demoniac a little bit more, because he goes on about it for quite a while more, uh, he says that it can either come about in two different ways. That is, the demoniac, the demonic person losing their freedom can happen in two different ways. Either it can happen physically, uh, or sorry, somatically, psychically, which is when the body is the organ of the psyche and is therefore the organ of the spirit. So the body is where all this is contained. And as soon as freedom conspires with the body against itself, unfreedom is present as the demonic. Or it could happen where freedom is lost pneumatically, which is like um, through the soul. It's talking about it in terms of the soul. And this happens when the truth ceases to be for the particular individual, only as he himself produces it in action. So it becomes instead something exterior that we memorize. Like it just, we, in the case of like Christianity and the Christians that he laments, it's like, oh, you just memorize scripture. You aren't actually... Uh, employing for yourself this project of spirit or spirit as possibility. You just see it as something that you just take on or, or take off as though there's no actual connection to the spirit to yourself as a soul or, or as, a, as a connection to freedom. So just looking inward or really trying to attain this degree of freedom or connection to God is not enough because it has to come with the proper understanding. And he calls this a kind of self-consciousness, not in the Hegelian sense that comes about by like, you know, looking at other humans, essentially. He, he, Kierkegaard wants something a little bit more rigorous here. And he calls this a kind of action, which is in turn, in turn, inwardness, looking into oneself. So some ways we can tell if someone lacks such inwardness of self is if they are superstitious or unbelieving in, in God, or if they are offensive or hypocritical, or if they have too much pride or cowardice. These are all signs that someone is lacking this proper inwardness. And to be inward is to be true to oneself. That is, the word he clings onto here is to be earnest. To be, to be true to oneself is really what earnestness means. That is, to mean what you are saying. And if it is uh, properly experienced, it will, it will allow for habit of action 
because it will elicit the strongest possible happiness. That is, this action will elicit the po strongest possible happiness. And I, I think those are my words. You don't see that in here. But he's really advocating for the, it's not really like an adoption of this kind of action or of this kind of inwardness, because that would imply that, you know, you just put it on or can take it off. It's the complete submission to that way of being. And it's just about, for him, it's just about acknowledging that that has always been the case within us. And it's about getting back, in a sense, to the roots of both ourselves and as world history and as human humanity in order to properly embrace it. And so it can't just be done to like be happy or to feel uh, satisfied or virtuous because that would be to externalize the uh, benefit of it, whereas the benefit should be the thing itself, that is the action itself. Now, people who don't engage in this, you know, are often scared of the infinite. They're scared of spirit. And so they cling to the the uh, instant, the, in, the instantaneous. They cling to moments, which is ironic for Kierkegaard because to submit to the moment and not to the eternal actually does the opposite of what they might intend. Because when you submit only to the moment and there's no possibility for the future posited, then it extends the moment to infinity, where it feels like you aren't developing at all. You are stuck in a moment that itself becomes a new eternal, but it's a bad eternal. It's very bad. It leads us uh, to this kind of this anxiety. What will eventually come in the next book, Sickness Unto Death, Despair. And that propels us here into chapter five, Anxiety is Saving Through Faith. And this is, I should say, the last chapter here. So we must be aware of anxiety so that we do not forget it. Otherwise, we would just be, we'd just submit to uh, our immediate experiences. We'd submit to our bodies and that's it. We wouldn't acknowledge ourselves as spirit. And that we have to do that so that we don't totally succumb to anxiety either. So the better understanding someone has of their own anxiety, the better off they'll be essentially. And we must use faith to properly grasp anxiety and to reveal the illusion of finiteness of you know just us being immediate creatures of just like bodies uh, and there being nothing more to us than that this isn't about uh some of the examples i've heard like oh you go to the store and there's you know, like all these different kinds of uh, like bread like which one do you buy and you're confronted with the all these possibilities no that is not what we're talking about here we are talking about the very possibility of possibility itself not not these specific examples we, we have to be a little bit more abstract than that but specifically how this possibility is bestowed upon us by god and how faith is for him the inner certainty that anticipates infinity so we must be educated on the possible the possibility of possibility the infinite but this comes with a risk and that risk for him is suicide so it can be mitigated with faith because if you are really confronted with the infinite then you don't know what to do you're stuck and it's so easy to get overwhelmed in that case and anxiety is necessary to purge us of all that is finite and petty so it's all about maintaining this kind of delicate stability or equilibrium between infinity and and finity and or finitude between the eternal and the temporal between this uh, body and, and mind maintaining this balance that gives us some kind of step into uh, the plan of God to some extent and connects us to it, to this divine plan. 
And so the psychological investigation of anxiety must now give way to an investigation of dogmatics, and that is God. God, and specifically for Kierkegaard, the way that Christianity is really the be-all, end-all of all possible existential engagements, because to engage with any other uh, religious doctrine is just to submit to some kind of like pagan um, commitment to the moment that that doesn't actually give us this proper or foster this proper connection between temporal and infinite and uh, connection with ourselves as spirit, as that kind of connecting thread uh, between the temporal and the infinite. And that pretty well covers this text. I'll just say that next week I'm going to start with the sickness unto death. And I don't know yet if that's going to be two episodes. It might be one, but I have to record it and find out. But if you, you know, you listen to this one and you liked it, uh, like, share, subscribe. If you're listening to this in podcast form, wherever you are, you know, leave leave five stars. That would be great. Help me out to get more um, exposure. And obviously, if I must think a lot of myself because I want my words to get out there, but it would probably be helpful uh, for some people who, who might be struggling with this stuff. And I don't want to say that I know any of this stuff better than anyone else. But with Kierkegaard, I just... Some of the stuff I was seeing and hearing and, and reading about it just was, you have to talk about Christianity to talk about Kierkegaard, at least with these two texts. And yeah, so if you like what I did, you know what to do. If you didn't like what I did, there's a thumbs down button for that. And I'll uh, catch you next time. Take care.